please, to Nehemiah chapter 8. I think it's uh, page 482 in the church Bible. Uh, While you're doing that, let me just uh, say something by way of background. Uh, Nehemiah uh, had been located in the city of Susa in present-day Iran, uh, serving the king as the cupbearer. He receives news that Jerusalem, located some 800 miles away, uh, his brethren there were in great trouble. They were experiencing uh, oppression, ridicule, uh, great shame was upon them. The walls had uh, been knocked down. Uh, the, the gates had been burned. They were in great need. And uh, he gives himself to prayer, and God tells him, in effect, that he's the answer to his own prayer. Uh, to go back and to be uh, master of works, if you like, for the reconstruction of the walls in Jerusalem. And in the process of rebuilding, and it was done very quickly, something like 52 days, in the process of rebuilding, they experienced uh, opposition again and again and again, uh, but with God's help, the work was uh, completed. So then, uh, reading uh, in just from the end of chapter 7. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mathaniah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masai. And on the left were Pedaiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. 
Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabthai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law, which the people, uh, while the people were standing there. They read from the books of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This is sacred to the Lord. This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. The Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. 
they celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Well, now, what a remarkable chapter, uh, chapter 8 of Nehemiah uh, is. And it is a transitional chapter uh, in many ways. The building of the city wall uh, had been completed, but God's work in his people was as yet far from finished. Uh, A second change or area of transition can be recognized, a change of personnel. Nehemiah, the great organizer and master of works, begins to take a back seat, and Ezra, the expositor of God's word, comes to the fore. Uh, God's gifts... uh, come to different men at different times for his work at different stages in its development. Perhaps we need to bear that in mind as we seek uh, a new minister in this place. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, Paul writes, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And one asks the question, should we not therefore conclude as we read through this book, that the spotlight in these chapters shouldn't be on Nehemiah, nor should it be on Ezra. The spotlight should be on God, the author of the spiritual growth that we are going to see evidence of. Now, Ezra had faithfully uh, proclaimed uh, God's word in Jerusalem for something like 14 years, and as far as we can tell, with little apparent effect. But this is about to change. During what is a second period of concentrated biblical instruction in Israel, The first was in the days of Jehoshaphat. Uh, We read in 2 Chronicles 17 and 9 following, in the third year of his reign, he sent his officials to teach in the towns of Judah. They taught throughout Judah, uh, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. They went round all the towns of Judah and taught the people. And the result... In the next verse, verse 10, the fear of the Lord fell and all of the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah so that they did not go to war against Jehoshaphat. Uh, surely we can see uh, the relationship there between uh, the security God brings to his people and their being tutored in his word. God and not the city walls is the fortress of his people. Now, in terms of application, uh, chapter 8 has been described as a blueprint, blueprint for revival. Now, I'm not very comfortable with that description. It suggests that revival is something that can be initiated by man. Uh, The kind of thing, for example, that was uh, promoted by Charles Finney 
on both sides of the Atlantic in the 19th century. Uh, Tick enough boxes, and God is obliged to send revival. That's never going to happen. We didn't think uh, we can twist God's arm in that way. However, as we read this chapter, I do believe that it can be used to generate a longing, indeed a prayerful yearning, for days of God's power. And there are three things I would like us uh, to observe as we look at the chapter. The first concerns a people with an appetite. Secondly, a leadership with a ministry. And thirdly, a multitude with a response. Well, the first of these are people with an appetite. Uh, Two great seasonal Jewish celebrations took place annually. First in spring with uh, the Passover and Pentecost, and secondly in the autumn with the Feast of Trumpets and then the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And it's in this latter celebration that our attention is drawn as something like it's been estimated between 30 and 50,000 people gather to Jerusalem. And the first thing I would like us to notice is that the people make a united request. Verse 1 tells us they assembled as one man. Now, this is not just a few zealous enthusiasts. This is a united community with a singular purpose and a determined resolve. They come as one man. How do we explain this remarkable unity of purpose? I want to suggest there's only one explanation. God was its author. This movement was not accidental but divinely motivated. Secondly, notice they make a specific request. Ezra is told, notice, Ezra is told, bring out the book, the law of Moses. Their hunger for the word of God is apparent. They didn't shout, bring on the entertainment. Uh, John 6, interestingly, reminds us that people can gather in a religious assembly for a variety of reasons. Some seek material provision, some spiritual entertainment, others have a political agenda. But this gathering had one specific thing in mind. They wanted to meet with God in his word. Bring out the book. Thirdly, they were prepared for prolonged and attentive listening. Ezra read the law to men, women, and children, verse 3, from daybreak till noon. Now, that's at least six hours. And they listened attentively for that period of time. Nor was this a one-off event. 
Look on at verses 13 and 18 and 9 verse 3, where they are standing for hours listening to great chunks of Scripture being read and expounded. Now, those who argue that a congregation's attention span is seven minutes should perhaps take note. (laughs) These folks were here for hours. Uh, In 1 Peter 2 verse 2, we read, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Notice the important connection there between craving and growing. Crave and grow. Uh, I wonder how our appetites are this evening for the Word of God. Do we crave in the way that these people so apparently did? Are we addicted or are we indifferent? Uh, When I was in uh, Pakistan uh, many years ago now, I I visited the village of uh, Varaspura, Uh, There had been uh, a little spiritual awakening going on in that area, and every weekday evening, the congregation left their fields, and they gathered to be taught from God's Word. And my sermon, which was interpreted, took uh, about uh, an hour. And at the close, the senior elder came up to me, and his uh, his face uh, spoke volumes. He didn't look terribly happy. And he said, why did you stop so soon? These people are hungry for God's Word. Uh, basically, he was saying, you've shortchanged them. Now, that's the only time I've ever been given a row uh, for not preaching long enough. Uh, But you see, the people in Jerusalem, they were Bible addicts. They wanted desperately to hear uh, God speak. Their actions also uh, reflected their attitude. First, you'll notice when Ezra opened the book, verse 5, the people stood up. Here was a congregation of God's people who who revered this book. They're not worshipping the book. Certainly not, but they're confessing that God, its author, is worthy of the highest honor. God is about to speak. Secondly, when Ezra praises God, verse 6, we read, the people lifted up their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Now, at Sinai, When the nation of Israel came into being and God published the significant blessings of covenant obedience and the consequences of disobedience, you may remember that the people, uh, as it were, embraced the covenant with both hands. Uh, This we will do, they say. Yes, we're ready for this. We're up for this. Well, They're saying we'll do everything that the Lord has said we will obey. We're embracing this God of covenant blessing. And finally, in verse 6, they bowed down and worshipped with their faces to the ground. The, The weight of this encounter with God caused them to prostrate themselves before Him, sharing the same sense of awe and wonder that was experienced by Israel at Sinai. This is a holy, majestic God. Wow! Let's prostrate ourselves before Him. 
And as far as they were concerned, God was there. He was there because his living word was being read. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that we imitate these practices, but I think we should embrace what they symbolize. Why, why do we gather together? Is it to hear a particular preacher or the next in a series of sermons or to enjoy Christian fellowship? If that's all, and there's nothing wrong with any of that, but if that's all, then there is something lacking. We should be saying, should we not, Lord, we long to meet with you. Our souls cry out for you. And if you choose to come even to chastise and rebuke us, that's fine. Just knowing that we've met with God, that's all that matters. To know that we've met with God in his house is all that matters. Secondly, notice uh, there is a leadership with a ministry here in these verses. Uh, and in response to the question, how was this appetite satisfied? God has a ministry team in place, verse 7. And their threefold priority is found in verse 8. First, they read from the book of the law. Bible reading in a worship service is not a ritual appendix. It is not a piece of program padding. It is the most important feature of worship. The worth of clearly enunciated, meaningfully articulated scripture reading uh, is described by John Blanchard in this way. He tells us that when preparing for the task as a young man in his home church, he'd spend hours praying over and practicing reading the passage, probably more time than some men spend in their sermon preparation. And often he was so drenched with his sweat in the process. No pressure then on our church Bible readers. But you get the point. Scripture reading is the highlight of our service. It, it's not a warm-up act for the sermon. Because this is God's living word. Secondly, the ministry team's task was to make the Scriptures clear, to ensure that their hearers understood uh, the text. Now, that uh, may have involved a translation from Hebrew to Aramaic, uh, but understanding becomes uh, the principal focus here. Uh, notice the stress that's placed on it in the chapter in verse 2. All who were able to understand, verse 3, men and women and others who could understand, verse 8, uh, so that the people could understand what was being read. You see, Scripture is not primarily addressed to our emotions. 
although we don't disengage our emotions when it's read, it is addressed to our understanding. The incomprehensible God has made himself comprehensible through the medium of his word. It's here that God makes himself known. This is why the reformers went to such pains to ensure that the scriptures were read and that worship was conducted not in Latin but in the heart language of the common people so that they could understand. Thirdly, the ministry team were involved in giving the meaning to the text and this is what expository preaching is designed to do. God has not only communicated truth clearly, but gifted some to make that truth comprehensible, digestible, and personally applicable. Many minister friends have confided that uh, the area they find most difficult in sermon preparation is uh, that of application. How do we apply the passage to our uh, hearers? How do we help them to engage with the text? I read uh, some time ago that it was McShane's practice on a Saturday afternoon to visit parishioners who were on their deathbeds, and he said that it helped him to better apply the truth the following day. In what way? He wanted to be better equipped to preach to dying men and women who were on the very edge of eternity. It's not just a lecture I'm giving. I'm addressing men, and I recognize uh, the great uh, spiritual decisions that are uh, facing them. Well then, a leadership with a ministry. Finally, a multitude with a response. What effect did God's ministry uh, have on this gathered assembly? Well, they were overwhelmed by what they'd heard. They were reduced to tears. Again and again, they're told, don't cry, don't grieve. Why are you crying? And that begs the question, why would a clear grasp and understanding of the law of Moses have this effect? Surely, first, because it reveals God's awesome majesty and holiness. If you like, it displaced their impoverished picture of God, which was doubtless shaped by other sources as many people's picture of God is today, they will tell you what God is like, but it's not based on what he reveals of himself in Scripture. It comes from somewhere else. Uh, but as God's law was read and expounded, it was as though uh, these expositors were saying, this is your God. This is what God is like. But uh, secondly, it exposed surely the inner corruption of their own sinful natures. It dislodged their heavily 
airbrushed Photoshop picture of their own goodness. Uh, and we've all got one of those Photoshop pictures. Photoshop's, it, it's a great tool. <laughs> it can obscure all sorts of warts and problems. And you can look at it and say, my, what a handsome fellow I am. Isn't that great? Well, we kind of Photoshop our characters so that we're really quite pleased with who we are and what we're like, until that is uh, God's Word, uh, which tells no lies, is expounded, and we begin to see in God's mirror that's what I'm like. I'm, I'm really like that. Uh, you'll remember, I'm sure, Isaiah's response when God appeared in his temple, high and lifted up. And as Isaiah gazed on the awful majesty of God and saw his holiness, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I see, I really see what I am like uh, inside. Despite people telling me I'm a great guy and a wonderful prophet, I now see, I really see. Well then, uh, make no mistake, these people had come under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. The people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Uh, that's the cause. Understanding the words of the law. The Holy Spirit, if you like, drew back the curtain in both God's character and their own, leaving them unbearably crushed by this twofold reality, the glorious majesty of God and the repulsive sinfulness of their own natures. However, before long, Ezra and Nehemiah are going through the crowd telling them, do not mourn, do not weep, verse 9. Do not grieve, verse 10. Do not grieve, verse 11. What is happening? They're certainly not saying, don't repent of your sin. Uh, there's no place for repentance in the life of God's people. Stop doing that. And they're not saying, don't grieve because you've offended God. Rather, they are affirming the purpose of the law, which was not to create an open wound or a running sore. Rather, the law wounds in order to heal. Its goal is not to drive us from God, but to draw us to Him, to encourage us to avail ourselves of His gracious provision. It's the schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And in this context, you might say, it's the schoolmaster uh, to lead us to God's provision in the Old Testament, which in turn leads us to Christ. More of that in a minute. God's provision uh, to lead us to Christ. So its goal is not to drive us from God, but to draw us uh, to him. Remember what Peter says in Acts 3.19, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. 
You see, our grief over our sin is of necessity subject to a time constraint. Weeping lasts for a night. Joy comes in the morning. And I think it is vitally important to grasp that the convicting goal of the Holy Spirit is not one of unending grief, but to flood our hearts with the joy of forgiveness and restoration. You know, Satan, if he can't prevent us from grieving over our sin, will do all in his power to prolong that grief. Keep on grieving, keep on grieving. He wants to keep us from the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. I wonder if you've heard him whisper, you know, your repentance isn't deep enough. It's pretty shallow. Let's have deeper repentance. You've not been sorry long enough. You know, it's only been a few days. Let's have a few weeks or a few months. It's not been long enough. You've, you've, not re- you've not yet reached the depth of sorrow that God requires. Uh, keep looking for that. He wants to keep our focus on our performance of repentance and away from the provision of God's grace. Jesus taught, did he not, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, that's a text that's often applied to the bereaved at funerals, and it does have application there. But its primary application points to those who mourn over their sins. On the other side of that broken-hearted mourning is blessedness, euphoric happiness, which the comfort and assurance of God's pardon and forgiveness brings. Now, Nehemiah and his colleagues want to see this wash over the souls of those who are gathered in solemn assembly. Finally, notice here the fruit of brokenheartedness is one of spontaneous obedience. Verse 13 On the following day, having given attention to the words of the law, they scour the countryside for branches to build booths and to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacle as the Lord had commanded. Picture them running backwards and forwards to their teachers and saying again and again, what else does God's word require of us? How might we bring pleasure to his heart? What can we do to please him? They place no limit on their obedience. No wonder we read in verse 17, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. Now, that's a period of a thousand years. They had never celebrated it like this for a thousand years. Years and their joy, we're told, was very great. Such glad and unfettered obedience had not been seen for centuries. Amazing. Now, as we seek to tie this together and as we 
prepare to approach the Lord's table, I found myself reflecting, would you believe, on the words of my secondary school maths teacher. Melia, he would say, there is an important gap between the problem stated and the answer you have given. I need to know how you got there. I want to see your working. How did you get there? Show me evidence of your working process. And he, for one, would want to know what the groundwork was that could encourage the people uh, to move so readily from their broken-heartedness to unfettered joy. It's a big jump. How do you get there? The text doesn't provide detail, but I think there is a significant clue in verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Now, they've been exposed to the teaching of the law of Moses. What might they have heard? What might have been made known to them? Well, on one hand, certainly they had seen the the rigorous demands of the law of God published in the Decalogue, certainly. But side by side with that and simultaneously, God published his plans for the sacrificial system fail to keep the law, here is the the provision of my mercy and my grace. Get the picture? Both were published at the same time. Not one without the other, both published at the same time. Now, they're only days away from the great day of atonement here. Only days away. And I find it difficult to believe that in terms of their instruction, they wouldn't have been taught the significance of the great day of atonement. When, when the high priest would come and he would lay his hands over one of the sacrificial goats and, and confess the sin of the people, and as their substitute and in their stead, it was sacrificed. That's the, that's the death. We deserve to die. That's the visual aid that's being uh, taught. But then there was another goat that was sent out into the wilderness, banished from the fellowship of God's people, distanced. Uh, Sin separates. That's what the second goat was teaching. Sin separates. You deserve to be separated from God. That's what the picture is. So that these two together were telling them that God has provided a means, not only of forgiveness from their sins, but of acceptance into their presence, drawing them back into the very family of the living God. Well then, what does this table tell us this evening? Far more clearly than the Passover, far more clearly than the Day of Atonement, reminds us 
that God has provided for us a perfect sacrifice for sin. And so, he can say with real authority, stop crying. There's no need to cry now because you can enter into the joy of the Lord because there is a sacrifice that has been made on your behalf. Travel from brokenness to unspeakable joy. We sung the hymn uh, a few weeks ago that bore the lines, the terrors of law and of God. With me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we confess that we do find our hearts longing for, yearning for, that gracious operation of your Holy Spirit that causes us to hunger like addicts for your word, that causes us uh, to desire to obey with unfettered obedience all that you ask of us, that causes us to see with greater clarity all that the death of our Lord Jesus has secured for us so that we may indeed enter into the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Help us to this end, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. And before we come to the Lord's table, we're going to continue our worship by singing, O breath of life, come sweeping through. And Alistair will lead us the tune of Spiritus Vitae. <laughs> 